Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. Superficial, sudden, unsifted, too fast for the truth. Does it not render the popular mind too fast for the truth? What need is there for scraps of news? How trivial and paltry. Am I talking about Twitter? No, I'm talking about the Telegraph. Those words you just heard were from an article published in the New York Times on August 19th, 1858. People have been complaining about the speed of communication for 150 years. We can't think fast enough to keep up with all of it. Why does it all need to be so fast? These are modern complaints, we feel. So maybe they're just the same old complaints. Nothing new, which means there's no great danger to our democracy and our presidential system. Which, of course, as you'll remember, is the topic of this podcast. Well, we'll see about that. But first, a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is October 3rd, 2012, and it's just 40 minutes into the first debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Ben Smith of BuzzFeed has posted an item on the site entitled How Mitt Romney Won the First Debate. In keeping with the ethos of the site, Smith was only writing what everyone in the political press was already thinking and saying privately in the filing center. President Obama had stumbled out of the gate. Reporters on Twitter were expressing this view. Television executives reading Twitter were encouraging their analysts to have the same view, even though the debate had still about an hour to go. David Axelrod, a top advisor to President Obama, told Peter Hamby, who was then of CNN and who wrote a report about Twitter and the campaign for the Shorenstein Center at Harvard. One thing was clear was that the Republican-oriented tweeters and also their influence on what reporters were tweeting was far more effective in that debate, continuing with Axelrod. And we really beefed up on those efforts in the second and third debate. These tweets tend to frame how people are reading this, this meaning politics and the debate in specific, and how they are evaluating what they're seeing. Twitter was a big player in the debates. Twitter is a powerful force. 
That's in 2012. Even those who pride themselves on intellectual rigor got bored with this first debate in 2012, long before it was over. To tell the truth, I started zoning out after 30 minutes, wrote liberal blogger Sam Wang. Though debates are supposed to be about issues and a chance to test the candidates, if they're not flashy and entertaining, people start to zone out. Writing not long after the debate, Andrew Sullivan demonstrated how the idea formed in the first 30 minutes about that debate had metastasized. How do you erase that imprinted first image from public consciousness, a president incapable of making a single argument or even a halfway decent closing statement? Political scientist John Sides has argued that the post-debate media narrative drives public opinion more than the debate itself. If the media sets its view in the first half an hour, public opinion is set when only a third of the debate contest has happened. And it did in Obama's case. In a Pew poll out shortly after the debate, Romney had a 49 to 45 lead in the race. It was a 12-point swing from Obama's 51-43 lead before the debate. Before, Obama had led on every policy issue and personal characteristic. Afterward, Romney led in almost all of those categories. This is why candidates play to these snap judgments, practicing set pieces for the early parts of the debate that create a moment that can be shared on social media and then in the larger media. After that first disastrous debate for Obama in 2012 when his meandering answers were deemed unfit for the environment, his team emphasized in subsequent practices that he needed to pick up the pep and pick up the pace. Ron Klain, his debate advisor, boiled the instructions down to the phrase, fast and hammy. Hammy being, you know, be a ham, for those of you, you out there who don't get what that meant. When Obama gave a long and dry answer in practice sessions, his team would remind him, fast and hammy. So the most powerful and complex office on the planet hinged on what sounded like a demand a waitress might shout through the short order window to the cook. Of course, Americans have been complaining about the quality of their presidential contests almost as long as presidential contests have existed. By 1800, when incumbent John Adams clashed with his former friend Thomas Jefferson, George Washington's admonitions about the danger of faction had been completely shredded. Federalists and Democratic Republicans went at each other with vigor unmatched by today's cable television vipers. Editors of rival newspapers threw punches at each other in the streets. Some of those punches landed. Pamphlets claimed that Jefferson was going to steal Bibles from people's houses. Things got so nasty in 1800 that President John Adams threw Thomas Jefferson's attack dog, James Callender, into jail in the last act of the Sedition Acts for Callender's writings that, among other things, claimed that John Quincy Adams was a hermaphroditical character. Republicans also claimed that Adams sent his running mate, Charles Pinckney, to England to pick up four pretty mistresses, two for the president, two for Pinckney. When Adams heard about this, he exclaimed, If this be true, General Pinckney has kept them all for himself and cheated me out of my two. Funny fellow, this John Adams. Every election seems to call for a denunciation of the shallow and petty nature of things. In 1952, six years before that denunciation of the Telegraph that was the lead of our episode, the New York Mirror wrote in 1952, in regard to the method pursued by political parties with reference to electing their respective candidates, there seems to be just one opinion. 
that it is disgraceful to the country. So when we complain about the sorry state of our presidential campaigns, where issue debates are thimble-deep and commentators hop after ephemera like kittens, we glide in the grooves of a comfortable American tradition. We want standards of selection that approach the power and prestige of the office, where informed citizens evaluate candidate positions and attributes to match whether those candidates fit the challenges of the day. And a campaign where the great moment of national attention created by a campaign is aimed at the most important challenges the country faces. The fear has been with us throughout history as we battle between leadership and weakness. Weakness defined by James David Barber in 1972 as government and politics shredded into fragments thanks to dreamy public apathy and brainless emotion. For citizens seeking a more perfect union who haven't let cynicism slow the struggle to do better, there is a particular danger at the moment that is more than just an iteration of the disappointing trends of the past. What's new is that we are living in an age of massive digital connectivity. Our modern social media campaigns with their attention to the immediate and emphasis on self-expression operate at such a pace and in such a shallow dish that they seem almost designed to rid voters of the appetite for restraint and patience in their presidents, which happen to be two of the most crucial attributes required in a president. Modern campaigns, then, aren't just an assault on our ears and minds. They're bad for the presidency. Now, campaigns have always soaked up the flavor of their age. We don't sing campaign songs now, which is a pity. Oh, who has heard the great commotion, motion, motion all the country through? It is the ball a-rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. For Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And with them will beat little Van, Van, Van is a used-up man. And with them will beat little Van. But in 1840, the campaign was thick with campaign songs. They were so much a part of the party rallies that the Whigs rolled printing presses mounted on platforms in their parades, churning out fresh new song sheets for the crowds to sing along. In 1896, political strategist Mark Hanna shaped the message for candidate William McKinley, so much so that Teddy Roosevelt complained it was like Hanna was pushing patent medicine. Warren Harding was notoriously stuffy. H.L. Mencken once compared Harding's rhetoric to a string of wet sponges. Democratic politician William McAdoo described a Harding speech as, quote, an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. So, as historian David Greenberg details in Republic of Spin, for the, for the 1920 campaign, Senator Harding hired, hired Chicago ad men. This was a new profession in American life, and they were going to buff up his stuffy image. They produced gems like Harding's slogan, Let's be done with wiggle and wobble. Did you have a wiggle and wobble when you were a little kid? We used to play in the driveway for hours on our wiggle and wobble. In the 1968 campaign, Richard Nixon told media guru Roger Ailes, yes, the same Roger Ailes that founded Fox News, that he didn't like what he called television gimmicks. Ailes responded quickly, television is not a gimmick. And he proved it by selling Nixon as a more likable fellow in extended infomercials where the candidate deftly handled pre-fixed questions from sympathetic audiences. 
1992, Bill Clinton's campaign took advantage of talk shows hosted by fellows like Larry King and Phil Donahue. Informal, chatty, comfortable. Clinton could appeal as the baby boomer he was. George Bush resisted all of this, saying... Such shows were beneath the dignity of the office, of course, until Bush was on the ropes and he ultimately succumbed and sat for an interview with Larry King. By taking advantage of modern sales and communication techniques, candidates were chasing voters where they lived. And once there, the successful candidates fit their behavior into the medium. In 1992, Bill Clinton donned sunglasses and played a saxophone on the Arsenio Hall late night talk show. wasn't new exactly. More than 30 years earlier, Kennedy had appeared on Jack Parr's show in 1960 when he was running for the first time. I would like you now to give a real tonight welcome to Senator from Massachusetts, Mr. John Kennedy. It was a first for Kennedy to do this, but it was a dry munch through the issues. At one point, Kennedy did try to make a joke and it dribbled off stage. Parr asked for an amusing campaign anecdote and Kennedy responded, I was made an honorary Indian. Clinton, at roughly the same stage in his campaign, had made the merger between candidate and the medium more complete by reclining into the show's vibe. He got just the response he was looking for in the Washington Post. Allison Hoff, 25, an assistant to the curator of the American music for the Smithsonian Institution, told the Washington Post, I like the sax because it has sex appeal, and I'm for candidates with sex appeal. Paul Begala, campaign advisor to President Clinton, said, A lot of the mainstream media, the established Sunday show crowd, they were aghast and appalled. I'd say the more upset they were, the more we were sure that we were right. Washington Post reporter and Clinton biographer David Marinus characterized the criticism of Clinton's appearance this way. Clinton had become a metaphor for all politicians these days, diminished by cultural forces that had rendered them little more than sidemen in the band. Clinton media advisor Mandy Grunwald said the criticism was founded on ignorance. It was the end of one way of communicating with voters and the beginning of another, she said. They just didn't know that yet. The tension in the reaction to Bill Clinton's sunglasses moment with the saxophone has accompanied every technological innovation and campaign that embraced modern marketing. The worry is that embracing the popular medium would dumb down the campaign, which was supposed to be filled with voters fulfilling Thomas Jefferson's maximum that a well-informed electorate is a prerequisite for democracy. There's a good deal of debate about whether voters are the rational actors of the civics classroom that we've all come to know in our civics classrooms. Voters are often motivated by their gut and have contradictory, misguided feelings. In today's environment, they are particularly clouded. 90% vote based on partisanship alone. They only need to know one thing. So how much does the behavior of a campaign really matter? Well, our campaigns and the way that they are run affect more than just the way in which we pick presidents. They affect and shape the office itself because the line between campaigning and governing is drawing thinner and thinner. 
Campaigns therefore condition a president and the voters into a set of expectations, which are quite different than what the job actually requires. In today's culture, our impulsive campaigns may be hardwiring the office for impulsiveness, and that may mean wiring it for failure. Now, it's important to tease out the change affecting campaigns that is simply new from the change affecting campaigns that weakens the electoral process and therefore the presidency. Some of the contemporary resistance to change over time has simply been the shock of the unfamiliar. Not every campaign innovation is automatically destructive to serious dialogue. The railroad and highway system increased speed of communication and encouraged time-consuming travel, which took away from a president's duties in office if he was an incumbent. But all of that speedy moving around the country did mean more people could see presidential candidates and candidates could learn more from the country from firsthand experience. And if America and the presidency is a balance, a balance between a president who has the time and to reflect and think and a president who is not so walled off from the country that he loses touch, then in the age of the railroads and the first flight, used by presidential candidates to campaign. FDR was the first one to use a plane to fly to a convention in 1932. Uh, It's good to rebalance so that presidents get a little access with the people. Of course, you don't want too much access, but that's that's a topic for another whistle stop. In 1992, Bill Clinton may have declared his preference for boxers over briefs on MTV, But the familiarity did not not dilute his campaign, which was so steeped in details and policy prescriptions, he would later earn the title of policy wonk. Ross Perot, in that 92 campaign, used the technological innovation of the infomercial, aimed usually towards pushing hair restoration products and food vacuum sealing systems. Ross Perot used it to educate the country about the dangers of the deficit. When the millionaire executive padded through a string of rudimentary charts and graphs, 16.5 million people tuned in for the half-hour paid political announcement. It was a higher rating than most regularly scheduled entertainment programs on all three of the networks. It also beat the National League playoff game, which followed it. That was an instance in which the country grew in understanding as a result of the new technology. Today, the information revolution means voters have access to more candidate positions and detailed discussions of the issues than they have ever had before. The Internet has also increased transparency about the relationship between lawmakers and the $3.4 billion influence business of lobbying. A person who cares about whether the federal government is going to reform the health care system can see which presidential candidates receives money and how much from drug companies, insurance concerns, and hospitals. In President Trump's case, people can learn what industries and countries with business before the government spend money at Trump properties that directly benefit him. Falsehoods are also checked far more thoroughly and in real time than before. But as you've already said to yourself or demonstrated by interrupting our time together by checking something on your phone, the technology that could make us more informed also makes taking advantage of that technology harder. We are distracted by alerts or the distractions we feed ourselves by checking email, Twitter, or Instagram. It's easy to veer away from or never get to whatever useful information we might seek to inform our political decisions. An endless bombardment of news and gossip and images has rendered us manic information addicts, wrote Andrew Sullivan when he tried to abandon the life of digital addiction, which he'd fallen into as one of the online political world's most influential voices. 
We check our phones almost every 12 minutes, one study showed, and younger users check their phones even more frequently. Another study shows that it takes a half an hour to return to task after a self-interruption. So you do the math. If we're interrupting ourselves every 12 minutes, there's no time for the half an hour reset. The distraction and shredding is the culmination of the cultural pursuit of immediate gratification. It now reaches into our brainstem through technology designed to tap our emotions, whether by offering us soothing distractions of the cat video or the certainty of a partisan fight. Virtually every consumer proposition today, from fast food and entertainment to social interactions, is deliberately crafted so that the rewards are immediate while costs are deferred, and deferred so seamlessly that they almost disappear, writes Paul Roberts in his book The Impulse Society. Speed of gratification is now the standard against which all consumer experiences are judged. Well, if a presidency is a consumer experience, as we've been carefully arguing, then perhaps the presidency might be susceptible to a situation in which the standard is speed of gratification. This consumer quickening has been going on for decades since the introduction of the credit card. But the, p- the pace has increased, and so has the ability to tailor our world. We want movies in an instant, our groceries brought to us by dinner, and cars that we order up and take us anywhere. The largest companies in America, from Amazon to Uber to Facebook, are all in a race to fill the air with buzzing drones plopping from the skies about whatever you want and more of it. The incoming CEO of Alibaba calls on-demand delivery the future of retailing. And the consumer marketing company Trendwatching.com says the future is already here. In 2018, consumers expect to summon retail experiences as they would a genie from a lamp, claps one report from the Marketing Trends website, which labels the phenomenon the magic point of sale. We want what we want when we want it. This is true emotionally as well. Social media was designed to let us follow our bliss, driven by the reward centers in our brains. The original objective for Facebook, says Sean Parker, the company's first president, was, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? The key was to create dopamine addiction, the adhesion to social media platforms that comes from getting, seeking, I should say, the little jolt of pleasure that humans associate with beneficial actions. So the jolt that comes from each affirmation, either in the form of a like or a heart or the delivery of information that confirms our existing worldviews. Studies show we will chase that reward of the neurotransmitter dopamine repeatedly with the passion of a gambling addict or a smoker. When there is no actual reward, our desire to search for it increases. This is why people open the Instagram app, find the results unsatisfying, close the app, and then immediately, without thinking, Open the app again. Like poison ivy, each time we scratch, the desire to scratch grows. This is from uh, Tim Wu, the Columbia Law School professor and author of Attention Merchants. The attention industry needs people who are in a distracted state, people who are perpetually distractible and thus open to advertising. And so it has a strong influence on the content of the media, which becomes increasingly attention-seeking and clickbaity, for want of a better term, and ultimately affects us because the kind of media that you're exposed to starts to influence your own brain and your own personality. So this is a mechanism more powerful than an advertising jingle. With ever more ability to self-tailor our experiences to the things we like on social media and a market that encourages self-gratification rather than endurance, 
of the uncomfortable. We are pushed to seek affirmation rather than information. It's just simply more pleasing. If we are ideological, we have a community to help us. Bloggers, commenters, talk show hosts, and cable channel blowhards dish up pre-sorted responses. The quality of their goods don't have to be that good because the more partisan we are, the more anxious we are to find something that confirms our view. Also, negative partisanship has become a part of our politics the more partisan we become. Choice is determined in negative partisanship not by an affirmative embrace of something on your side, an idea or a candidate, but an embrace of group revulsion of the other team. So in an election like 2016 where the candidate, where the electorate, had a highly negative feelings about both candidates – Political scientists Alan Abramowitz and Stephen Webster of Emory University found that the key factor in 2016 in predicting party loyalty was how voters felt about the opposing party's presidential candidate. It was twice as important that how you felt about the opposing party's presidential candidate in predicting loyalty as one's feeling towards the candidate from one's own party. So partisans are locked into their views, though there may be lots of contradictory information out there banging on their certainty. Psychologists tell us that partisans are not open why are not wired for open mindedness when it comes to political debates because people wrap their identity tight with bailing wire and string to their political beliefs so that an attack on an issue or on a candidate is received as an attack on their identity. When faced with contradictory information, people will respond almost as if it's a physical threat, responding to contradiction not with realization and light from the heavens, but with greater support for the thing that has just been debunked. Writing in the National Review, Jim Garrity explains how the power of identity has overcome our reason and ruined our debates. Some of us want to argue that certain policies are good and certain policies are bad, but a vocal chunk of Americans don't really care about what the policies are. They would much rather argue that their side is right. They don't care if these are the same policies or comparable to those they denounced earlier. The system is clogged with bad faith arguments, hypocrisy, and flip-flopping. So for the Jeffersonian voter looking for nonpartisan information, they quickly discover that partisans have clotted the river of information with old shoes, refrigerators, and rotary phones. Numbers are manipulated, quotes are clipped to remove context, and videos are edited to convey a soothing to the faithful but ultimately false impression. Not all of the misinformation is smithed by trolls and bad faith partisans. Some of it is created by motivated reasoning, the psychological phenomenon that makes us blind to alternatives because we're conditioned to get that quick, soothing answer. So we are motivated to get an answer, and so, looky here, we ultimately find it. Trusted news sources are motivated to compete in the quickened news environment, so they drop some of the rigorous practices of the past. So these are not laboratory conditions for meeting Jeffersonian expectations of an informed citizenry. It's more like trying to take the SAT in the highway median. The conditions for the modern election marketplace make it very difficult to pick a candidate. But political scientists have long been skeptical that voters operate in clear patterns. Political scientist Christopher Aiken 
and Larry Bartles explain in Democracy for Realists that most people pay little attention to politics. And when they vote, if they vote at all, they do, they do so irrationally and for contradictory reasons. The idea, this Jeffersonian idea that we've been uh, winking at all along, that citizens have clear preferences about policy and elect leaders who will carry the, those policies out in order to serve the majority of the country – was not really reality, and it really isn't reality today, given what we've just been through and talked about in terms of partisanship and social media self-soothing. So people make political decisions on the basis of social identities and partners and loyalties, not an an honest examination of reality. So what does this all mean for the actual presidency? Well, that will be the topic of our next episode. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson is with me every step of the way in the Google document, answering one dumb research question after another. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped me make this episode happen on the CBS end. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode two.